Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm joined by the one and only Greg Potter. I actually don't know how many times Greg's been on the show, but enough so that everyone listening should be aware of who he is. If you're not, definitely check out the, the old episodes Greg's been on. He is our kind of resident sleep guru, although guru probably has really poor connotations, and I don't think Greg would want that title, but I'm going to have roughly given it to him. But we're going to be doing a sleep clinic today, or that's at least what we've called it, where I've kind of sourced a bunch of questions from our member site uh, and from just Instagram and kind of chucked them over to Greg. And he's done some kind of background work. And we're going to really, really give you kind of the down low on these questions. And hopefully each episode can be like a bit of a reference where, I don't know, people can search and they can find this podcast and really kind of go and find Greg's answer. And I think everyone realizes hopefully now how important sleep is. So I'm I'm super happy that we can do this and very grateful to Greg for being here and being able to do this. So Greg, how are things on your end? How's, uh, how's life? How's uh, Resilient Nutrition? Those who don't know, Greg is the owner of Resilient Nutrition as well, which is uh, a company I'm really, really fond of as well. So yeah, how are things over there? All as well. I'm very pleased that the sun is out once again. And also that we're able to see more people now than we once were. And things at Resilient Nutrition are very well. We have some new products coming out shortly. People might know, based on our previous conversations, that we basically sell souped up nut batters. And we have versions coming out shortly called Rebuild, which contain added whey protein isolate and L-leucine. So anyone who's looking for a snack or something to add to meals, which is high in healthy fat, fiber, and high quality protein might be interested in those. They also taste pretty good. And we'll have to get some over to you shortly, Steve. Yeah, I always appreciate having, I, I literally have it, if not every, uh, almost every night on my Greek yogurt, like in at night, it's even now I'm in prep because yeah, I mean, I'm not having a ton of fat, but I want the fats to be high quality. And I know I'm getting that from your product. And then obviously, I normally have the calm one, which has the ashwagandha, which is normally nice for sleep. And I'm sure at some point, if we haven't already spoken about ashwagandha, we'll end up talking about it. Uh, but that's exciting. And uh, yeah, definitely everyone keep your eyes peeled for those because, yeah, I mean, they're tasty and they do what a lot of us want kind of that sort of product to be doing for us. And I don't know, every bodybuilder or everyone listening kind of into physique are concerned about what they're putting in their body and that's some good quality stuff to be putting in so i'm excited to see those and to try them of course uh but without the way let's get to the first question then and that is any tips to help me reducing awakenings during the night quite a few <laughs> and i'll preface this by saying a couple of things one is that some of the things that we'll discuss we will have touched on in previous podcasts but perhaps in a roundabout way the other thing I want to add is a disclaimer, and that is that I'm not a medical doctor or anything like that, and I don't want people to take this as medical advice. If you're struggling with your sleep for some reason, you think you have some sort of sleep problem, then you should seek help from a professional. I'm just trying to help. And we're going to be sharing a lot of strategies. I don't want that to seem overwhelming, and I suggest that you pick maybe just one strategy based on what we discuss, give it a go and pick something that you think will be easy to implement. That's likely to positively affect the desired outcome. And that's likely to positively influence lots of other related health behaviors and outcomes. 
And whatever behavior you're trying to change, you should probably consider tracking it as well as the related outcome, not in a neurotic, dysfunctional kind of way, but the mere process of self-monitoring often helps reinforce behaviors. Now, with that said, why might somebody be waking up during the night and what might they be able to do about that? Obviously, there are lots of things that could contribute to nighttime awakenings, everything from pain to needing to pee during the night to your bedroom being too hot or too cold to noise to menopause to your bed partner kicking you to you temporarily stopping breathing during the night the list goes on and something to consider is also the severity of the problem that you face we've spoken before about insomnia and there is adjustment insomnia that all of us experience from time to time which is a disruption to sleep in response to some sort of stressor. And when that stressor stops, the associated sleep difficulty normally stops too. But then there's chronic insomnia, and I won't go into the exact definition of that, but typically people would define that as being the sleep problem in question taking place at least three nights a week for at least three months to be defined as chronic insomnia. And the first port of call in helping people with that disorder is usually cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. This therapy is usually the first port of call in helping people who have chronic insomnia. And it addresses maladaptive sleep-related thoughts and behaviors. It's very effective. And interestingly, it's probably as effective when delivered online as it is in person for lots of people. There is a freely available web app named Sleepio, and you should check that out if you're concerned that very helpful. I've used it previously to good effect. And what I'll do is I'll touch on some of the strategies that are used in cognitive behavioral therapy, and I'll focus in particular on the behavioral ones because they tend to be used first, and they're arguably most potent, certainly in the short term. One of these is known as stimulus control of behavior. The idea is simply that certain stimuli predictably lead us to engage in certain behaviors. If you're approaching a red traffic light, then you would probably break on seeing that red traffic light. You do so reflexively. What happens in insomnia is that people learn to associate the bed, the stimulus, with being awake, the behavior. And they will therefore benefit from reconditioning their brains to associate the bed with being asleep. The way they do that is by first saving the bed for sex and sleep only. Second, only going to bed when actually sleepy. And third, if you wake up during the night and you don't fall asleep within 15 minutes or so, don't watch the clock, just go by your sense of time passing. Then you should get out of bed, go to a different room and do something relaxing in dim lighting. And that third one is probably most relevant in this particular context. To make that process easier, you want to prepare another room in your house or your flat for you waking up in the middle of the night. That's something that you're commonly struggling with at the moment. And that might just mean leaving a book out for you to read or making sure that there's a lamp handy so that you can turn that on because you don't want to go through to that other room and then 
turn on the overhead lights because that's more likely to wake you up and then interfere with your subsequent sleep. Next, when you do wake up, you want to have a plan for what you're going to do at that time. And activities like reading are certainly good ones, but I think that there are things that you can do to speed re-entry into sleep. So if you wake up and the first thought that you have is, oh, I'm going to struggle to fall back to sleep now, then one of my favorite strategies is called paradoxical intention. The idea here is to try and address sleep-related anxiety because what you resist persists. So using this approach, what you would do is you would lie in bed in the darkness and rather than telling yourself to go to sleep, you would try and gently hold your eyes open and as time goes by, congratulate yourself for remaining relaxed but awake. And counterintuitively, most people then quite quickly fall back to sleep. The most potent therapy that's used to help people who have this particular sleep problem is called bedtime restriction therapy. And I won't go into all the details of this, but the idea is just that if your sleep is very inefficient, meaning that you're spending, say, six hours asleep, but 10 hours in bed each night, so your sleep is 60% efficient, then you'd be smart to reduce your time in bed, which will help you build lots of pressure to sleep during wakefulness, and your sleep will therefore become more efficient. And then as your sleep becomes more efficient, you can start to once again increase your time in bed so that eventually you retain that high sleep efficiency, but you're also getting sufficient sleep. And the way you do this is you track your sleep for perhaps a week or two, and you'd therefore estimate how much sleep you're actually getting and how much time in bed you're spending. And you'd match your time in bed to your average sleep duration, provided that it doesn't drop below, say, five and a half hours. And then you would spend five and a half hours in bed per night if it was five and a half hours and continue to track your sleep. And if your sleep efficiency is 85% or higher for one week, then the next week you would bring your bedtime forward by 15 minutes. So if you'd been going to bed at midnight and getting out of bed at half five in the morning, then the next week, you'd go to bed at 11.45 p.m. And the first couple of weeks suck, but that strategy is very potent at helping to reduce nighttime awakenings, consolidate sleep. And people typically find that after five or six weeks of that, they're spending much more time in bed, but they're sleeping really efficiently and they feel far better during the daytime. So your short-term loss will surely be a long-term gain. Related to this, there are lots of things that you can do during the daytime to build sleep pressure. So one way that people go wrong is if they're struggling because they're waking up during the night, they'll be tempted to nap during the day. The problem with that is that even a brief nap will pay off some of that pressure to sleep that's accumulated during prior wakefulness. So if you're waking frequently during the night, then I would say no napping during the daytime unless it's essential to your safety. So unless, for instance, you were going on a long drive and you felt yourself feeling sleepy 
at the wheel. Other things that you can do during the day to build sleep pressure are the things that most people will be doing already. So being physically active and expending energy specifically will help build that pressure to sleep. Heating the body is another one, probably for various reasons, one of which is that when you heat yourself, for example, by way of using a sauna or just spending time out in the sun being physically active, your body will synthesize more growth hormone. And as we discussed before, Steve, growth hormone certainly isn't particularly anabolic in skeletal muscle, but it does promote the deeper stage of sleep and it does help consolidate sleep at night. And then you want to use your brain as well. So sleep is actually quite a local phenomenon. Interestingly, if you monitor people's brains during the daytime and you see which parts of the brain most active, then it's those parts of the brain that will be prone to getting the deeper sleep during subsequent sleep. And if you keep somebody up for long periods, then you'll also see so-called micro sleeps in those brain regions that have been most active. So simply engaging yourself in cognitively demanding tasks will help consolidate your sleep at night as well. Then of course, there is the bedroom environment. So I mentioned things like noise previously with respect to temperature, keep a window open if that's an issue you could use a fan that will also help to cancel out noises that would otherwise wake you up steve i know you contacted me recently about mattress toppers if you and your bed partner have quite different thermal preferences say that you like a cool bed and your partner likes a warmer bed then something like a chili pad or an ula could be helpful they haven't been well studied but the rationale for using them is quite strong and I know a lot of people feel like they really help them sleep. The advantage of the ULA is that you can program how the temperature of the mattress topper changes over the course of the night. Whereas the chili pad you would set to a single temperature and it would stay that way over the course of the night. And ideally you'd probably want some fluctuation. Then there are other things you can do to cancel out noise as well. And you could use a white noise machine, you could use earplugs and so on. Then there's the light in the bedroom, obviously remove devices that emit light, use blackout blinds. If you have lots of light coming in from outdoors, you could use a sleep mask too. I know these are really basic things, but it's surprising how often some of them come up when somebody feels like they're doing everything right. They just don't realize that they are in fact not doing everything right. We've spoken a bit before about nocturia, so waking up to pee in the middle of the night. That can be due to lots of different issues, everything from kidney dysfunction to use of certain medications to low bladder capacity. And for that reason, the way that you would address it will be very much person dependent. But let's just take the easy one, which is just drinking too much during the day. So polyuria, or sorry, polydipsia, which leads to polyuria, which is just peeing a lot in general. If that's the case, then I think for most people, not consuming any fluids after the final meal or snack of the day is, is a good way to go. But simply restricting fluid intake is sometimes enough to address that. Another one that commonly, commonly pops up that is massively underdiagnosed and also hugely burdensome is sleep apnea. Sleep apnea does need to increase urination during the nighttime. And basically it's periods of intermittent 
cessation of breathing during the night time. And if your bed partners ever witness you stop breathing, then there's a small chance that you might have this, or if you're a heavy snorer, I won't go into all the details of it. I'll just say that there's a website, stopbang.ca, stopbang.ca, that will take you through a simple questionnaire that's quite effective at identifying people who are likely to have sleep apnea. And then if you are one of those people, you can then seek further guidance because treating it can be really transformative, not only in terms of cardiometabolic health, but daytime sleepiness too, and also things like your sex life. Then there is pain. And obviously pain is a bit of a mythical beast. There are loads of things that can contribute to it. And the way that you address it should be specific to whatever's causing it. But in terms of things that are generally quite helpful, I think that mindfulness meditation can be handy. It tends to raise pain threshold and pain tolerance. And there's quite good evidence showing that regular mindfulness training also improves sleep in many people. So you could just download one of the widely used meditation apps, begin small, maybe just one minute in the morning until you've ingrained the habit. And then over time, you can start to do more meditation at each of those sessions. And it has all sorts of other beneficial effects on everything from attention to immune function. Obviously, those effects very much depend on the type of mindfulness training that you do. And I would recommend mindfulness as opposed to other forms of meditation, mostly just because it's been better tested than the other forms. Then another thing that came up in many of your clients' questions was the fact that these nighttime awakenings are more common when they're in negative energy balance. So let's say they're in contest prep or they're just trying to get beach ready in the summer. And Steve, I'm sure that that's something that you can yeah. empathize with. It's, and, and probably it's right now immediate. as well. Yeah, yeah. It's just a quick, I know like... you can almost track the number of times I'll wake up in a night and you'll know what phase I'm in and like Mm -hmm. how deep into a diet I am from that. So for sure. Yeah. And I think the reality is that this is going to happen to pretty much everyone. I haven't heard of many instances of someone just continuing to sleep like a baby throughout their contest prep. And Steve, you know, many more people than I do who have been through that process. And I suspect that you feel the same way. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think you're genetically set up for contest prep if you can like still have very good sleep that deep because yeah, a majority of people, their sleep starts to get sketchy and wake up earlier, very common go to kind of go into bed if like it just ends up impacting kind of your usual sleep routine. Yeah, so everything I've just said will apply to you, but I think there are a couple more things that are worth considering. One is how you distribute your energy intake over the day. Steve and I did a podcast on chronic nutrition, which went quite deep on this subject. But I think in this context in which somebody is chronically in a negative energy balance, consuming relatively more of your day's energy intake late in the day, so shortly before the sleep period, could plausibly help reduce nighttime awakenings just because if doing so reduces your hunger during the sleep period, then I think that that's likely to reduce those awakenings. That's purely hypothetical, but I think it's a strategy that's worth trying. And 
the best way to go about that would probably be if you could train in the afternoon and then align your evening energy intake with that then you can help offset the otherwise negative effects of consuming large meals late in the day because for all the reasons that we previously discussed if somebody's not in a large energy deficit then consuming relatively more calories and carbohydrates and fats in particular early in the day is likely to be good for metabolic health but the best time at which to train at least in terms of your body's clock is probably in the late biological afternoon if you're doing strength training then another issue that a lot of people face is just overdoing stimulants and the most relevant of those of course is caffeine if anyone's interested then i recently wrote a blog about caffeine named in defense of caffeine at resilientnutrition.com that goes into a fair bit of depth about caffeine how it works and how to get the most out of it but i think as a general guideline capping your caffeine intake by at least eight hours before your planned bedtime is a good way to go and restricting your daily intake to no more than three milligrams of caffeine per kilo of body weight per day you can use the website caffeineinformer.com to estimate your intake is a good place to start but there are massive differences between people with respect to how they metabolize caffeine so you need to go with how you feel personally i'll just add that a lot of people feel like consuming lots of caffeine doesn't negatively affect their sleep it actually does one thing that i really frequently see with clients is consuming dark chocolate late in the day having a few squares after dinner and they just don't realize that some dark yeah. chocolates are absolutely loaded with caffeine and a related stimulant named theobromine it's not as potent a stimulant it's in the same class of compounds the methylxanthines but if you consume a 45 gram hit of my favorite montezuma's 100 cocoa chocolate then you're getting about 150 milligrams of caffeine so that's two espressos wow, that's a lot yeah damn. yeah that is a lot and that will negatively affect your sleep believe it or not and then the final thing that i'll just add is is track your nighttime awakenings like i mentioned at the start and i won't keep repeating that for the upcoming questions but track the behavior that you're changing and track the thing you're interested in and if you're tracking nighttime awakenings then you could use a wearable as we'll get to later but you could also intermittently use something like a, a sleep diary or a sleep questionnaire if you want to use one every month or so you could use the psqi the pittsburgh sleep quality index if you want to use a sleep diary every night i like the consensus sleep diary and i think there's one freely available at consensusleepdiary.com hey pascal here i just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. Awesome, Greg. I think that was incredibly, incredibly thorough. And I just want to repeat for the listeners that you mentioned, like, don't do all of these at once, because I think there might be people listening and be like, I'm going to do all of it. And I mean, not only is that ridiculously overwhelming, you're never going to know which of them necessarily is going to have led to the outcome. And it could be something simple, like you said, like people aren't doing little things like wearing a face mask or things like that, or keeping their room window open and a bit cooler or what have you or keeping it dark for example it could be as simple as those sort of things so 
I think that was really brilliantly explained. And I mean, the the one with dieting and contest prep and caffeine getting out of control, I think like anyone who's done that, I think as well, people are ignorant necessarily to how different foods that contain and how much caffeine they contain because like diet drinks are often one that increase during dieting periods, mm. but a lot of them contain caffeine. And that can quickly, if you consume like a liter of, I don't know, your favorite diet Coke or something, Pepsi there's, Max, there's a yeah. lot. Yeah, Pepsi Max is even higher. So there are caffeine-free versions, but they don't taste as good. <laughs> <laughs> but people may not even realize that they're having their, I don't know, they might be having a fat burner with it in. They may be consuming green teas, coffee, energy drinks, pre-workouts, diet sodas, diet chocolate, because they're like, oh yeah, all of these things are like things should help hopefully help me through this diet but when your sleep is really not in a good place suddenly your diet <laughs> starts to not go so well and i guess one thing uh, the only thing i'm thinking of that people might be thinking is supplementation i'm kind of glad you haven't mentioned any supplements and maybe they're your last port of call or you wouldn't even go that far is there any supplementation you would think might help i know there's like i don't think it's easy to get hold of though slow release melatonin i haven't tried it uh, but I don't think it's even particularly easy to get hold of, at least in the UK. So this is another one of those questions that came up that we weren't going to address today. And I think, oh, sorry, no, no, <laughs> I didn't realize. No, no, no worries, no worries. But I think if we save it for a separate podcast, then okay. we'll go deeper on it, just because it's a really big subject. We, we we could record a series of podcasts about sleep supplements only. So what I'll say is that, interestingly, when it comes to helping people who have insomnia the strategies that you use to help somebody sleep through the night are very similar to the strategies that we use to help somebody fall asleep faster at the start of the night. One of the differences is that if somebody is taking a sleep medication or a sleep aid, then the type that you use might differ. So you mentioned slow-release melatonin. That is a patented form of that made by Neurom Pharmaceuticals called Circadin that is indicated for elderly people who struggle to sleep through the night. And it's relatively effective at helping them. Melatonin isn't available over the counter over here on this side of the pond, but it is in many countries. And you don't need a prescription for some of the time release forms of melatonin. The one I'm thinking of is microactive. And I haven't seen much research on microactive specifically, but if its parameters are what they claim they are, then that type of pharmacokinetic profile should be better for helping somebody stay asleep through the night than regular melatonin. So if you just wanted to fall asleep at the start of the night, then regular melatonin would probably help you a little bit with that. If you wanted to sleep through the night, then the time release stuff would be better. But as I alluded to earlier, the different things that stop people from sleeping through the night are very variable between people. And that, of course, has implications for supplementation. If you struggle to sleep through the night because you have joint pain, because you have early stage rheumatoid arthritis, then that would indicate certain supplements. In that instance, supplements including things like ginger, curcumin, glucosamine, chondroitin, and some others, collagen, might be helpful. Whereas if you're struggling to sleep through the night because you wake up feeling anxious, then that might indicate something else. But I think it's definitely one for a future episode. Cool. 
yeah, I think you've probably perked up a lot of people's ears because sleep supplementation is always one of the areas people are very interested in as well. But I think you've always kind of, I, I like that you always come there as like a last resort because there's a lot you can do before it. There is a lot you can do before it. But with that said, one thing I want to be clear about is that I'm not somebody who thinks that you should save the supplements for when you have everything else in place. I don't think that makes any sense when you pause and actually think about it. Mm-hmm. If you look at well-controlled studies of supplementation, then they're designed to show that just taking the supplement independent of any other changes in somebody's lifestyle has some effect on the relevant outcome. And if they show that the supplementation positively affects the relevant outcome, then why would you not capitalize that? Especially if you are a physique competitor who's trying to squeeze every morsel of progress out of your training nutrition and sleep possible yeah yeah i think it's uh i remember asking you for like a could we get somehow a sleep pyramid going kind of how we have a a nutritional kind of pyramid where calories are most important all the way up to supplementation but even in that context sure you're going to get the most power from the things at the bottom but if you start supplementing with something that has good evidence, it's still going to help someone, even if you don't have the rest of the stuff right. It's just a case of try and get this stuff right. But so, yeah. like you're saying, supplementation, like rationally, it's still going to have a benefit there. Yeah, and you don't want to overcomplicate things, but it might not be a pyramid yeah. necessarily. And one person's pyramid is probably not somebody else's pyramid. It's an interesting idea though. Cool. Awesome. Should we get to the next question? Yeah. Yeah. So the next one is any tips to help me fall asleep at the start of the night? Absolutely. So a lot of the things that I just mentioned in the first question are relevant to this one too, but I'll just mention a few that are particularly relevant. So one is of course only going to bed when sleepy. And one reason that a lot of people struggle to fall asleep at the start of the night is that they're not sleeping in alignment with their chronotype. Chronotype being whether somebody is more of a morning lark or a night owl. If you're a night owl and your bed partner is a morning lark and you feel that you both have to go to bed at the same time, so you end up, say, meeting in the middle, then the morning lark is going to go to bed very tired and probably miss out on a bit of sleep that way. And the night owl is going to go to bed not feeling particularly sleepy and is then going to lie in bed awake for the first hour, which is not ideal, especially if you think back to the idea that we're trying to recondition people with sleep issues to associate the bed with being asleep. So wait until you're actually sleepy before you go to bed. Even if you have to wake up in the morning to an alarm to get you out of bed, if you then wake up in the morning to the alarm, then that will get you up and about and expose the light, which will help anchor your body's clock early in the day. But also because your sleep period has been compressed, you'll build lots of pressure to sleep, both of which should help you then fall asleep earlier the following evening. Related to that, you could actively try to move your biological clock earlier, which will help you fall asleep earlier. The way that you would go about that would be to get outside within a couple of hours of waking if the sun is up and spend at least half an hour outdoors without sunglasses on, exposing your eyes to that bright light. And even if it's an overcast day, the intensity and the spectrum of light you're exposed to will help you shift your body's clock earlier. And then at the other 
end of the day, in the two hours or so before bedtime, you want to systematically reduce your exposure to light, and in particular to short wavelength light, which often appears as blue or green light, but full spectrum white light also has a lot of short wavelength light in it. And that's a subject that we can come back to later. Then, of course, there is, of course, caffeine. Again, the reason I mention it this time, though, is that while caffeine will reduce adenosine signaling in the brain, and adenosine is the main chemical that's involved in that buildup of sleep pressure that we feel the longer that we've been awake, consumed later in the day, caffeine will also shift your body's clock later. There was a nice experiment done by Ken Wright and his colleagues a few years ago showing that when people had just under three milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight shortly before bed, they delayed their plasma melatonin rhythms by about 40 minutes. So independent of the effect on sleep pressure, it has some effects that will interfere with your ability to fall asleep at the start of the night. Then I mentioned the importance of raising your body temperature during the day if you're trying to build lots of pressure to sleep. One strategy that's very helpful is having a hot shower or hot bath in the one to two hours before your planned bedtime. You probably want it to be something around 40 degrees Celsius, if not slightly higher. Stay in there for 10 minutes, if not slightly longer. If you do that, then you raise the skin temperature of your extremities by a couple of degrees Celsius. That counterintuitively will help you radiate heat out from your core, facilitating the drop in brain temperature that's important to sleep initiation. And if you use a sauna instead, then my guess is that you might want to use that a little bit earlier because sauna could actually raise your core body temperature substantially. And just while it's on my mind, Steve, one thing I did mention earlier is that if you are struggling to sleep through the night or struggling with your sleep in general during contest prep, then I think that using a sauna might be really helpful, not just for its possible effects on sleep, but also because one thing that's not often discussed is that adipose tissue, fat tissue, is a storage depot for various toxicants that we're exposed to, in particular, persistent organic pollutants, so things like PCBs, and also some heavy metals too, cadmium, mercury, arsenic, lead. And as you lose fat, a lot of those will then enter your bloodstream. Your body needs to detoxify those. And you can excrete those through various pathways. You'll urinate some of them out, for example. But there's been some nice work in recent years by people like Stephen Genius, fantastic name, showing that when people use the sauna or just sweat a lot, they excrete a lot of those via sweat. So let's say that you've been exposed to lots of mercury in your life because you're a bodybuilder and you just happen to consume massive amounts of canned tuna. That will catch up with you, even if you don't realize it, and it will be negatively affecting various aspects of your health. I don't want to sound alarmist, but it will. And using a sauna as you're losing fat will help you because the process of losing fat will liberate a lot of these toxins that have accumulated in your fat tissue. And then using the sauna will then help you sweat those out. And 
if you're thinking about a true detoxification process, then sauna use or anything that gets you sweating for prolonged periods has to be a part of that. I just want to mention that because it's not something that often comes up and sauna use can have a bunch of other positive effects too, obviously in terms of cardiometabolic health, possibly immune function, and even things like how well your body disposes of any sugar that you consume. So I think sauna use is probably a really handy thing to do during contest prep. And then bear in mind, obviously, that if you raise your body temperature during the day via sauna use, then you're going to expend more energy. And not only that, but there are probably some, some other relevant positive effects that you'll get from using the sauna. So I think it's a really helpful strategy if you're leaning out and you, you want to get some health benefits, but also support your ability to get good sleep. And I wonder about things like whether it could influence how vascularly you look on stage because it, it really potently affects things like endothelial function too. So I think it's probably a relatively untapped strategy by a lot of people. And if you've got access to a sauna, then I would definitely look to capitalize on that. Now, I, massive I've never tangent. heard it discussed. Sorry, I was just going to say, I've never heard it discussed any of those aspects of like mm. saunering and stuff. Um, can you, you can buy like a, like sauna suits, can't you? Like plastic suits you can put on at home. I don't know if they're as good, but I'm just trying to yeah. help me make it more uh, kind of approachable. And the important thing is, is to, to get yourself sweating. And Steve, you'll, you'll be, <laughs> you'll be spending probably more of your time than you would like sweating at the moment while you're yeah. lugging around that heavy vest. <laughs> but if you use a sauna suit to the same effect, then you're going to experience many of those same benefits. They're probably independent effects of the raised temperature that are beneficial. So for example, a lot of viruses can't survive above a certain temperature. And many people are therefore interested in the use of sauna during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that makes a lot of sense. But if you go to a gym in which you have access to a sauna, like many of the UK gyms do, I think plugging that in, preferably away from your workouts, would be really handy. And the reason I say away from your workouts is that you should bear in mind that it is taxing. Your cardiovascular system in particular responds quite strongly to sauna use, as does your endocrine system. So if you just stick half an hour in the sauna on the end of every session, then you might find yourself feeling quite fatigued quite quickly. So don't, don't go overboard with it but definitely consider including it as part of your strategy. Sorry. Yeah. It sounds, it's, it's got my cogs going. Cause I'm like, how can I get access to this sauna? <laughs> uh, but actually like if I, if the, uh, the light's been coming in the flat enough and I'm like posing practice, I end up dripping with sweat when I do that. So maybe I just need to do like a few rounds of posing practice, really get a sweat on. Um, yeah. and that's actually, it's incredibly tiring. So I can see that. So mm. no, very interesting. And, interesting about the vascularity as well because that's always something bodybuilders want on stage yeah absolutely yeah and i i suspect that it probably would support angiogenesis in some people so the formation of new blood vessels in some people whether that's true of somebody who's highly trained who's already doing a lot of high repetition resistance training don't know probably less likely to be the case definitely won't hurt just don't be an idiot and go nuts with it and make sure that you hydrate well around the session also don't do it if you've been drinking lots of alcohol the night before okay with that said going back to the original question about falling asleep faster tangent over i think 
other things to try would be if you're struggling to fall asleep at the start of the night because you're ruminating a lot, then something I think I've mentioned to you previously, Steve, is scheduling worry time. Yeah. And the idea is just that if you're busy during the day, then that busyness will suppress a lot of your concerns. And then as you take your foot off the accelerator late in the day, those concerns will percolate to the surface of your mind. And that rumination could then interfere with your ability to fall asleep. So scheduling 10 minutes or so around dinner time, maybe at the end of dinner time, in which you sit down with a pen and a piece of paper, list your concerns and list the smallest, easiest next thing that you can do to address those concerns can be really helpful in this particular context. And then somewhat related to that, making a to-do list, which you could do at the same time for the next day. If you're somebody who's very busy and has lots to get done and is prone to going to bed, thinking about everything that needs to be ticked off in the next 24 hours can definitely help people fall asleep faster if they're experiencing some sort of transient insomnia. And people like Michael Scullin from Bailey University have done very nice work showing that in recent times. Then I think another big one at the moment is screen time. During the pandemic, most people are using their electronic devices, smartphones and so on more than they were previously. And that can of course interfere with sleep through it few pathways one would be the exposure to light from the device my guess is that that has pretty small if not meaningless effect on sleep if you're spending plenty of time outdoors during daylight but with that said i think there's then the content of the media you're exposed to so if you're exposed to lots of distressing news if you're doom scrolling through bbc website or whatever then that will negatively affect your sleep and then there's the loss of sense of time passing. That's probably most relevant to anyone who has Netflix on autoplay. And that's going to push back your bedtime. But all those things can be somewhat mentally alerting as well. And one other thing to mention that I pretty much never hear discussed, which isn't to say that's not being discussed. Maybe it's just my choice of media that I consume is that your brain needs downtime. It needs time each day in which to mind wander. And if you're constantly listening to something through your headphones or scrolling through your social media feed, then it never gets that downtime. The reason that this is particularly important to sleep is that it's during that mind wandering, which is driven by increased activity in a network in the brain known as the default mode network, that your brain tags various concerns, things that you've got on your mind for processing during sleep later that night, specifically during REM sleep when you do most of your dreaming. And if you don't have that downtime, which you let your mind wander, then what will happen is you'll go to bed and your brain will need a period when you first get into bed to do that tagging. And therefore, if like me, you're someone who's quite keen on learning new things and prone to always trying to be productive, always listening to a podcast while you're on your feet or speaking to someone on the phone or answering emails or whatever, making sure that you go for a walk each day in which you don't have your phone with you or you have on airplane mode can be a game changer for sleep. It's not well studied, but, but that's definitely my impression. And then with respect to pre-sleep phone use, I think stopping using your phone at least half an hour before bedtime is doable and helpful. There was a nice study published last year looking at young adults showing that 
among people who have problematic smartphone use, if they turn off their devices half an hour before bed and keep them off until the morning, they fall asleep faster, they get more total sleep, their sleep is more efficient, their subjective sleep quality is better. And the next day, their working memory improves as a result of those improvements in their sleep. So just restricting your phone use around the sleep period and keeping your phone out of your bedroom is definitely really important. And then finally, having relaxation exercises to help you fall asleep when you go to bed can be really handy. And paradoxical intention isn't a relaxation exercise, but I mentioned that earlier, that is relevant in this context too. Then there are things like deep breathing. You wanna breathe slowly through the nose, deeply. The rate at which you breathe will be person dependent, but a lot of people suggest that getting down to breathing around six times per minute while you're doing this type of exercise is a good way to go. That will help quieten activity in the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system, boost activity in the parasympathetic branch, both of which will support healthy sleep. Then there's progressive muscle relaxation, really helpful for athletes in particular, anyone who does lots of exercise. The idea is to sequentially scan through your body, probably start with your toes, contract your toes, hold the tension for five seconds or so. As you relax that muscular tension, exhale, and then progress upwards through the body. So you then move to the rest of your feet, your calves, your thighs, and so on until you're up at your face. That can be very helpful, especially in people who carry lots of muscular tension. And then also there are lots of forms of biofeedback that have been used to good effect over the years. Not necessarily does require some sort of device, but the idea is just that if you can develop more awareness of various processes that are involved in arousal and you can gain more voluntary control over those, so examples of these would be your heart rate or your breathing frequency, then by better controlling those, you can relax yourself and, and fall asleep faster. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up really interesting i think there's i mean there's a lot of different strategies someone can use and actually some of those i think you could probably combine with one another almost like you turn your phone off half an hour before bed go have a hot shower or what have you um actually with for, you mentioned that temperature is there like a way of gauging it if you like i don't know most people would just probably have like a standard shower i've thought about this is there uh, a sensation do you know how hot that should feel is it like you have to put it on the hottest or it should just be like like a bit warm or like very warm. How, do you know what that is, Greg? Well, I think a lot of modern showers will have temperatures on, on the actual shower knobs, but not otherwise, <laughs> yeah, no, I know not, not yeah. ours here either, but otherwise the way that that feels is, is not hugely uncomfortable. By okay. I don't want you to, cool. to get into Burn. a shower and scold yourself. Yeah. And I'm also not suggesting that you take your thermometer into the bath with you. <laughs> but I think just making sure that it feels hotter than just being lukewarm, yeah. but also not so hot that it's deeply uncomfortable. And then staying in there for at least 10 minutes, doing yeah. that an hour, an hour or two before bed is a really good way to start. Yeah. And when you're in contest prep, you have to start exfoliating, shaving more often, all this, all this malarkey. So... <laughs> 
join it like with your what's it called your like, teeth hygiene regime and everything so yeah ten, 10 minutes is quite a long time for a lot of people I, I like in terms of showering so i'm just saying it from personal experience i'm like i'm trying to like do as many things as i can in the shower like you said like being productive as much as possible one question i had greg was um relating to kind of going to bed when you're tired i have experienced this and i think it it is a thing where you can push past that point you want to watch the next show on Netflix or whatever, but you're feeling sleepy, but you decide I'll wait it out. And then I don't know, half an hour later, you're suddenly not as tired as you once were. Is that kind of, have you, what's the problem? Is that a problem? Uh, what have you done there potentially? It can be a problem if it's causing you to spend less time in bed than you need on a regular basis. And I think that if you do push through and then all of a sudden half an hour later, you feel quite alert you shouldn't force yourself to go to bed. You should wait until you're sleepy again and probably engage in activities that will help you feel sleepy faster. In terms of why that happens, I've heard a lot of people speak about ultradian cycles in various aspects of brain function over the day. We've discussed before circadian rhythms, which are these rhythmic processes that recur roughly every 24 hours. And are important to numerous aspects of our biology. So the most obvious circadian rhythm is the sleep-wake cycle. Ultradian rhythms occur over much shorter timescales. So your heartbeat is an ultradian rhythm. And during sleep, we pass through these different cycles of sleep roughly every 90 minutes. Those are also ultradian rhythms. And some people say that we have ultradian rhythms in various brain processes during the day as well while we're awake. I've looked a couple of times for that literature and I have not found much on it. So if anyone is familiar with that research, then I'd love them to forward it to me. And I've also heard some very prominent, celebrated neuroscientists with large followings discuss this at length. And I just can't find the research on it. So I might be looking in the wrong place. If anyone is familiar with that, then please get in touch. Interesting. Yeah, I just, I know it's happened to me where I've like, I don't know, it's earlier than I normally would go to bed. And then I'm like, oh, like maybe I'll go to bed. And then I'm, I force myself to kind of stay past it. And then I do wait until I'm tired again. And normally it doesn't have a big impact. But I just wondered if you were to consistently do that, whether or not that would start. And like you said, if you're feeling well rested and wakeful and it's not having that negative impact, it's probably not something to super stress about. All right. Should we get to the next question? Yeah, sure. Cool. So next question is, uh, how do I wind down efficiently if I can only train late, for example, finishing 90 minutes before bed? Many of the same ideas apply. <laughs> I feel massively boring saying that, <laughs> but just add that proviso. Now, with that said, I think when you finished your training session, I think having a hot shower straight after makes a lot of sense given what we were just discussing. Ideally, those late sessions wouldn't be the highest load sessions. When I say load, I'm really talking about both the volume and the intensity of the sessions. And for some people, they won't have any control over that. And that only opportunity to get to the gym will be late in the day. So if that's the case, then so be it. But otherwise, let's say that you work Monday to Friday, and then you also go to the gym one weekend day. And you're on a split in which one of your sessions is the hardest session each week. If that's the case, then I'd probably schedule that harder session for Saturday or the Sunday in which you go to the gym and then save the other sessions for after work during the working week. 
Now, with that said, I think otherwise you want to minimize undue stresses. So let's say that like you, Steve, you train at home and that's the case. Then things like how loud the music is have alerting effects. So simply trying to reduce some of those would probably make sense. Then there is your exposure to light around the training session. I'm not suggesting that you go into the gym wearing blue blocking glasses. I think that would be stupid. But straight after, if you're heading home from the gym and let's say that the, the sun is out because it's that time of year, then you could consider wearing sunglasses at that time to start to inform your brain that it's time to begin winding down. I think the size of your post-workout meal is an important consideration in this context. And if after your session, you have a really big meal, then that's probably going to interfere with your sleep. You don't want it to be not very nourishing because then you're not going to get the best response to the training session. So with that said, I'd probably just make sure that you get an adequate bolus of protein based on the research. That's probably something like 0.4 grams of a high quality protein per kilogram of body weight. And then I'd otherwise probably just keep that meal or snack containing a modest amount of carbohydrate. If you've been doing some form of exercise that depletes your muscle glycogen stores, which will almost certainly be the case. And then keep it relatively low in fat, make it easy to digest. You could consider supplementation in this context, but we'll save that for another time. And then I think there are some strategies that people can use to rapidly calm the nervous system. So just as an example of this, if you think about meditation, then there's this huge array of different forms of meditation that you could engage in. Focused attention, loving kindness, the list goes on. And there are certain things that you can tweak to modify how the session influences your body and in this case the the autonomic nervous system for example simply doing your meditation lying down is likely to accelerate increases in the parasympathetic activity in your nervous system following exercise so what i would personally do in the situation i'm not recommending this because it hasn't necessarily been tested experimentally by scientists but I would probably do something like a body scan meditation in which I lie down and I really like a couple of meditations that are available for free online on YouTube. If you search for Mark Williams mindfulness, the body scan meditation, I think is meditation number two. Try that while you're lying down and see if that helps get you back to baseline faster than if you were sat down watching tv or what have you but otherwise use some of those strategies that we've discussed previously and just bear in mind that ideally you would move your training around a little bit awesome i, I it's just got me thinking on that would is there any difference between say typically i guess you want a wind down period which is kind of what you're describing there is there anything different versus kind of working late if say one night you were working later than you normally would and maybe it's i don't know you've only got an hour and before you typically go and then to bed normally you'd have multiple hours before that is there is the techniques that you'd kind of prescribe be similar in that case 
They would. Yeah, they certainly would. Arguably, there are reasons to think that they should be a little bit different just because the way that the exercise and the cognitive activity respectively could affect your sleep are slightly different. But practically, I think the strategies are going to be much the same. It's just there are other considerations too, like the fact that if you have to return home from the gym, then that's not relevant if you're already at home working. So all of a sudden your exposure to daylight because the sun's up until after 9pm at the moment isn't relevant, if that makes sense. I guess if you're working from home, then you can put your, your blue light blockers on for that period of time, uh, things like that. So yeah, no, that's awesome. I know I was thinking very selfishly. Sometimes I run podcasts when I've got people from like Australia or New Zealand, yeah. and then I put my blue light blockers on for that. But I think afterwards, this kind of the meditation that you're describing, it's never something I've tried. I've always kind of just gone in like, I don't know, sat out and just like tried to do my usual relaxing routine. It's not quite worked uh, mm. like it normally does. I tend to stay a bit more like, hyped up for a yeah longer. and it, it doesn't have to be a meditation i think other strategies would be really helpful at this time would be doing progressive muscle relaxation doing that type of slow deep breathing i would do both of those supine lying down and i would do those in a different room to the bedroom so maybe you, you do that on the living room floor and then if you start feeling sleepy then you can head to bed after that i think anything that quietens the activity in that fight flight or freeze branch of the nervous system is bound to help cool we've got time for one more question do you think yeah of course yeah cool so let's tackle well we've kind of talked about it a little bit so it's a good question to probably leave people on are blue light blocking glasses helpful i think they can be if you look at much of the research then it tends to show either negligible effects or small positive effects and this was a recent study published in which they took athletes and they had them use glasses that actually have lights built into them and thereby expose the eyes to short wavelength light at the start of the day which can be really helpful if you're a real night owl and you're trying to shift your body's clock earlier and then at the end of the day they use blue blockers and they did experience some improvements so they fell asleep faster, their subjective sleep quality improved a bit. They've been commonly studied in the context of things like night shift work. One thing to consider is that like that study of athletes I just mentioned, many of these studies haven't just used blue blockers, but have included other things in the intervention. So sometimes it's hard to pass the effects of the blue light blocking specifically but importantly, I just don't see any downsides to using them unless you feel like a bit of a wally wearing them. So they're probably most helpful when you've got little control over your light environment. Let's say that while you're at home, you can dim the lights, turn off some lights or just stick on a lamp or whatever. You probably don't need them. But if you go around to your in-laws and you're exposed to lots of bright light there, then maybe wearing your blue blockers there where you would feel awkward asking for a change in the light environment would be a good strategy to use. And then obviously during jet lag, if you're outdoors during the daytime at a time at which you really ideally want to be exposing yourself to darkness and just as an aside, check out the website jetlagrooster.com for more specifics on this, then 
you might want to use blue blocking glasses at those times. And I personally use them in that particular context. So I think used intelligently, they can definitely help you get over jet lag faster. Not that that's particularly relevant to many of us right now. And then the tricky thing is just identifying products that work. And this is true of so many consumer devices, which devices do what they claim they do. And I haven't spent enough time looking at this in the context of blue blocking glasses, but there's a really simple tip. If you put your blue blocking glasses on and you look at something blue and it still appears blue to you, they're not doing a very good job of blocking the blue light. <laughs> yeah. So I think starting there is a good way to go. And then I, I'm loath to mention specific companies, but I'll just add that my friend James at Red Light Rising makes nice blue blocking glasses. And Steve, I think you and I have, have been fortunate enough to receive some freebies from them. And they're, they're high quality as far as I can tell. So, so maybe check those out. But if you need a prescription pair, then some of the larger companies do have prescription pairs too. I think Blue Blocks, for instance, makes prescription blue blocking glasses. Yeah, I think I've got maybe four or five pairs now. And I think it can be tempting because like you said, sometimes they don't look that great. And I've purchased clear ones before, but I really don't feel like they, like you said, you look at something blue and I'm like, this is not changed. Like it just looks the same. Yeah. So, uh, and some, some of the discussion of things like digital eye strain, I think it's probably based on very, very weak evidence. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask, is there, cause there are clear ones, there are slightly off kind of yellow or darker orange ones. What, so, so Elton John ones. Yeah. I've got some of the Elton John ones. <laughs> where, where, how far do you, what ones, if you were to recommend a pair to someone, I tend to recommend a darker orange. If someone's using it for sleep, is that where you'd go? Yeah. I'd, I'd get an amber pair. Yeah. I guess, yeah, an easy test is because, uh, I mean, there's some really cheap ones out there. And if they're super cheap, then you're probably like barking up potentially the wrong tree just because I imagine they're probably not going to do it. But yeah, some of the, like you said, the red light rising ones, I've used those and they definitely do seem to make a difference and they definitely are blocking out those light spectrums for me. Uh, and it, it's an easy one for people to use. So it's kind of feels like a no-brainer in some ways, but like you said, there's not a ton of research and it's not like if you can control your environment, a lot of the apps, like if you're working late, you can use F.Lux or a lot of like iPhones and things, they tend to kind of, you can set this up, can't you? I think on their kind of, they have it inbuilt where they remove some of the blue light later in the day, I think. Yeah, and I think the other thing to consider is the brightness of the device. And it's not very clear the relative importance of the brightness versus the spectrum of light that you're exposed to from those devices. The relative importance probably depends on many factors, but if you have an iPhone say, and, and you can adjust the brightness settings easily during your biological nighttime. So let's say from two hours before bed until your wake time in the morning, then I think it makes sense to do so. It's an easy win, no downside. And that's when you'd recommend putting them on like two hours before your bedtime. I think we've talked about it even before yeah. in a previous podcast. Yeah. So if, if you look at melatonin synthesis, then there's a sharp spike in melatonin synthesis by the pineal gland in the brain beginning roughly an hour and a half, maybe slightly longer than that before when you would typically fall asleep. So if you're 
hoping to fall asleep at 11 p.m., then you probably want to stick them on sometime around half nine, if not slightly earlier. So maybe one and a half to two hours before your planned bedtime. Cool. Perfect. Greg, I think we've probably covered as many questions as we can. I think we've probably got, we've actually got probably halfway through all the questions we had there. But like you said, off air, we wanted this to be, and it has been incredibly comprehensive, uh, which I think is the most value that we can give to people. So this sleep clinic is something I personally would love to run like every couple of months. And if Greg is happy to do that and uh, we can make these semi-regular, I think this is going to provide people a lot of value. So yeah, we'll have to cover off the other questions another time if if you're happy to come on. Absolutely. Yeah, sounds good. Awesome. Is there anything you want to leave the listeners with? I guess we already spoke about kind of resilient nutrition and maybe just make sure people know where they can kind of follow you. You're actually semi-active, I would say. Like you're active most weeks on Instagram. I think you picked that up a little bit. And I mean, your content over there is always helpful. It's very much along the lines of what we've been talking about here um, and obviously your blogs and things. But if people want to contact you, get involved with resilient nutrition, where should they head? I would say check out resilientnutrition.com and specifically the knowledge hub section of the website because i do sometimes write things like blog posts the most recent which was on caffeine that a lot of people will be interested in there's also a free ebook that i wrote about nutrition the principles of resilient nutrition which is available via download on the homepage, if that intrigues you and then otherwise my own personal instagram is at greg potter phd like you said I'm semi-active on Instagram and I try and make the posts helpful. They might be a bit spotty in terms of their frequency, but it's normally something related to how lifestyle affects health and often sleep specifically. And I, I get a lot of positive feedback given the paltry size of my audience. So hopefully some people will find those helpful. For sure. I recommend people definitely follow Greg. Greg recently had a nice sleep series. Uh, well, I, I don't know how recent it was, but it was a, a very good series that you can probably find over there. And uh, the ebook that Greg mentioned there as well, I've read through and uh, I picked up some kind of bits that were kind of a different take on some topics, which I found really, really helpful and interesting. So definitely recommend people check that out. It's free. There's kind of a no brainer there if you want to learn more. So yeah, Again, Greg, thank you so much for coming on and uh, thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you soon. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site.
So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can you can lock your journey. There's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.